Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 27, Leviticus chapter 19. You know, we just got started last time in Leviticus chapter 19. It's a chapter that focuses on the holiness of the worshiper. That's you. So let's reread a little bit of uh, Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19. Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to the entire community of Israel. Tell them, You people are to be holy because I, Adonai your God, am holy. Every one of you is to revere his father and mother. You're to keep my Shabbats. I'm Adonai, your God. Don't turn to idols. Do not cast middle god for yourself, middle gods for yourselves. I'm Adonai, your God. Do not turn to idols. Do not cast middle gods for yourselves. I am Adonai, your God. Catch that. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to Adonai, offer it in a way that will make you acceptable. It is to be eaten the same day you offer it and the following day. But if any of it remains until the third day, it will have become a disgusting thing and it will not be accepted. Moreover, anyone who eats of it will bear the consequences of profaning something holy that was meant for Adonai. That person will be cut off from his people. When you harvest the right crops produced in your land, don't harvest all the way to the corners of your field. Don't gather the ears of grain left by the harvesters. Likewise, don't gather the grapes that were left on the vine or fallen on the ground after harvest. Leave them for the poor, for the foreigner. I'm Adonai, your God. Do not steal from, defraud or lie to one another. Do not swear by my name falsely, which would be profaning the name of your God. I'm Adonai. Do not oppress or rob your neighbor specifically. You're not to keep back the wages of a hired worker all night until morning. Do not speak a curse against a deaf person or place an obstacle in the way of a blind person. Rather, fear your God. I'm out an eye. Do not be unjust in judging. Show neither partiality to the poor nor deference to the mighty. But with justice, judge your neighbor. Do not go around spreading slander among your people. But also don't stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. I'm at an eye. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but rebuke your neighbor frankly, so that you won't carry sin because of him. Don't take vengeance on or bear a grudge against any of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm at an eye. You know, we see that six of the first ten commandments are directly addressed in this chapter. And the words state the duties and the responsibilities that every believer in the God of Israel is to take on. And we're told immediately in verse 2 that you shall be holy for I, Yehovah, am holy. And while this instruction is paid lip service in modern Christianity, for the most part, our holy, or rather our personal, personal holy behavior has pretty much been set aside because of the supposed danger that we might actually commit a work, which of course is legalism. 
Okay. I think the foundational problem that, kind, that caused that kind of twisted logic <laughs> comes from the erroneous belief that Jesus did away with the Torah. And with it then went any tangible definition of what holiness is and what it looks like in the life of a believer. I mean, what that statement about being holy as God is holy means is that we're to imitate God whose very nature is holiness. And that kind of holiness is expressed in our moral integrity which must in turn be manifested in our behavior and our actions. Not just our intentions and our inner feelings. I explained the last time that we met that the whole purpose of our human will is to express and manifest moral decisions. But from what source are we to draw in order that we can distinguish what is moral versus what is not? According to the secular progressive world, that source is the human heart and the the human intellect. According to the modern institutional church, it's the denominational articles of faith and its associated religious doctrines. According to God, it's his laws and commands as revealed in his Torah. So holiness is an inner condition that must be expressed outwardly to have any practical value. God is not a holy God who then behaves in an unholy way. So for us to claim holiness because of our relationship with Yeshua, but to behave as though our decisions and actions are completely separate from that inner holiness makes us hypocrites in the worst possible way. Therefore, we are to accept as a gift from God by means of Messiah a new essential nature that produces a kind of holiness that transforms our moral decisions and our behavior into a kind that mimics and is in harmony with that of the Creator. Now in verse 4, Israel is told not to turn to idols. Do not turn to is a Hebrew idiom. It means that you're not to call on, you're not to rely on something or someone else. In this case, an Israelite is not to call on the power of an idol, a false god, for help. Next in verses 5 and 6, sacrificial offerings are addressed. But you know, it's not really speaking of sacrifices in general. Rather, it specifically is referring to what is called the Seva Shlamim, class of offerings. And the instructions are that this kind of offering must be done exactly according to how Jehovah ordained it. It must be eaten. All of it must be eaten on the first day. And these are all things that are defined way back in Leviticus 7. Now, we're not going to go into detail here. But you know, a reasonable question would be why of the five different classes of offerings that we studied, God would select the Zeva Shlamim offerings as the ones make a dire warning against violating its proper protocol. 
because it says that he who eats of this particular offering improperly is going to be found guilty by God and that the penalty is that the violator will be cut off from his people. In other words, that person will either be excommunicated from the nation of Israel, that also includes, by the way, separation from God, or he could be executed. Well, the reality is that the Shlamim class of offerings would far outpace all the other kinds of sacrifices in quantity and frequency. And this was because, by rule, the worshiper who offered his animal for a Zebah Shlamin sacrifice could, A, perform the sacrifice whenever and as often as he determined he wanted to, and B, he got to keep the biggest portion of meat of any of the kinds of sacrifices he could offer. Now, it's been a while since we discussed this aspect of sacrifices in general, so since it's mentioned in verse 8, let me remind you of it. Notice that the problem with improper eating of this sacrificial meat, meaning to take a portion of it that wasn't assigned to that person, is that the worshiper has profaned what is sacred to the Lord. Now, recall several weeks ago we talked about God's holy property. And whatever animal was chosen to be sacrificed to God has its ownership officially transferred to God at some precise moment in the ritual. Usually it's when hands are laid on the head of that animal at the tabernacle. And from that instant onward that sacrificial animal now belongs to God, so it becomes holy property. So to improperly eat of an animal that's been, in other words you take the wrong portion, a portion doesn't belong to you to, to improperly eat of that animal that's been turned over to God is to directly violate what's his. And there doesn't exist a much more serious crime that an Israelite can commit than that. Hence, this most severe penalty of being cut off from your people and the consequence for doing it. In verses 9 and 10, they deal with making provision for the poor and for the strangers who live among Israel. But notice how these two commands would not have had any effect for several years for, for the time, from the time that they were given. Because at the time these commands were laid out, Israel was this wandering community of three million souls. And they certainly didn't stop and farm. And these two commands are directly about farming. They wouldn't engage in farming for 40 more years. Okay. Now, just in case you've forgotten, these passages we're reading in Leviticus were given to Moses at Mount Sinai less than a year after they left Egypt. And many of these commands will have no meaning, nor any kind of direct function, until the Israelites have conquered the Promised Land and moved in. Of course, these Israelites didn't know at the moment these commands were being given that most of them would never see the day that they had vineyards and fields of their own. As far as they knew, they were probably only a few weeks away from their final destination. 
But God is preparing them nonetheless for even though the direct application of these agricultural rules was going to be many years away, the underlying principles they were based on could be exercised immediately. And the principle was that in Israelite society, those who were unable to care for themselves were to be shown mercy and given a means to survive. Now, in direct application, the admonition of verse 9 is that you were not to reap all the way to the edges of one's field, which simply meant that when an owner of a field harvested his grain, he was to leave a certain amount of the field completely unharvested. Thus, the poor could harvest it. This is usually called gleaning. And then he can have food. But that's not all there is to it. The second part of that command concerning field crops is that the field's owner shouldn't gather for himself the gleanings. And since we'll see several examples in both Old Testament and the New Testament of this subject, we're going to take a moment to understand this practice a little bit better. There were two allocations of grain for the poor. The peah and the lechet. Peah means corner or edge. Okay. It is that part of one's field that is to be left unharvested altogether. Of course, the obvious question that every farmer would have asked is, so how much of my field does that amount to? The Mishnah says that in general, without a good reason that it should be otherwise, one-sixteenth of a person's field is to be left unharvested. About six or seven percent. And that amount would depend on local economic conditions such as how many poor people were in need of aid at that moment. How abundant the harvest might be in any given year. If it was a bad harvest, a higher percentage might actually be required to be allocated for the poor. Not less. And so, did we get this picture correctly? It was up to the poor to come and themselves harvest the grain. It wasn't gathered for them and then delivered to their doorstep. Okay. The other allocation of grain for the poor, lehet, referred to the gleanings. And gleanings are that part of harvest that falls to the ground. That's just a normal result of the harvesting process. And the way grain was harvested in those days was that a person would in one motion catch the stalks of grain in one hand and then cut them off at the ground level with a sickle that was in his other hand. And with each stroke of that sickle, some small number of individual grain stalks would fall out of his hand. And by the law of Laquette, those who were harvesting were not allowed to reach down and pick up any that fell. Those had to be left for the poor to glean. And of course, one of the prime examples of that is we find in the book of Ruth. Now, the vineyards, which are going to be an important and very large part of Israel's agricultural economy, 
they were to be dealt with along very similar lines as the grain fields. So some quantity of grapes was also to be set aside for the poor. God's command is that not all of the fruit is to be picked off the vines. Some is to be intentionally left for the poor. Further, the grapes that did fall to the ground were never to be picked up by the farmer. They were to be left for the poor. The grapes that were left unharvested, still attached to the vine, are called oleot. Oleot. Okay, and general, these, generally speaking, these are the grapes that have been very slow to mature. So when harvest time came and the grape clusters were plucked, those grapes that were small and not fully matured yet were to be left on the vine to mature a little bit longer. It's those grapes that would be ultimately harvested by the poor. Parate is the Hebrew word for those grapes that fell to the ground and they had to be left where they lay for the poor to come along. Now, here's an important question for us. Who were the poor? Who were the strangers? who were supposed to come in after the harvest and help themselves. The poor, in general, were those who had no money to buy a field. Perhaps they were a family where the father had died and thus there was no income. Perhaps they were sickly, they were lame. There was a reason they couldn't work. These were desperate people, not lazy people. God, and therefore the Israelites, tolerated no laziness in their society. By definition, in this chapter, those defined as the poor were Israelites. The other class of people permitted to partake of this kind of charity are in Hebrew called ger. The meaning of ger, as used here, is not the foreigners who became a part of Israel. This is not referring to that mixed multitude of Egyptians and others who joined up with Israel as they left Egypt. These particular gear are people like foreign merchants or tradesmen who might come into town for a while. Or perhaps they were even foreign mercenary soldiers or craftsmen who would come to find work. In all cases, it meant someone, Aguirre did in this case, it meant someone who either had no intention to become part of Israel, or who was not even welcome to become part of Israel. And God made it clear that if even those people lived among Israel, even they were to be shown mercy and given a means to survive at least at a subsistence level. Now in verse 11, the topic switches from social responsibility for the poor to civil law. And the immediate topic is, you shall not steal, which is of course a repeat of the Eighth Commandment. And I suspect you're beginning to see why Leviticus 19 is often, is often seen by the rabbis as a Torah within a Torah because it recounts and in some cases it expounds on many principles that have already been ordained in the Exodus and even in earlier parts of Leviticus. And this same verse 
also refers indirectly to the ninth commandment, you shall not lie, because it says that one should not deceive. One should not have unfair dealings with another person. Now, you know, this concept of honest dealing is indeed quite apart from most Middle Eastern cultures in that day. And many still to this day. Okay. Getting the best of a business deal by means of lying, cheating, holding back relevant information is considered positive. It's considered an admirable thing in many Arab cultures. It's looked at as being wise and cunning. And of course it sets up then every transaction as being adversarial in nature where there must be a winner and a loser. And I don't want you to think I'm picking on the Arabs. Because I can tell you firsthand from my own experience that many of the world's cultures think exactly that same way. But Yehovah says that his set-apart people are to be above board and fair. Not being shrewd, doing your homework, driving a hard bargain, that's a different matter. It doesn't take very much study of the Talmud to see that fair dealing and justice became the bulwarks of Hebrew thinking and of Hebrew society. It seems that all throughout history, no doubt due to the principles God, God said, set down in the Torah, that the Hebrews have had a heart for the underdog. Okay. Something I might add that America has also been known for, and it's a virtue that, thank the Lord, so far we haven't lost yet. Now, moving along, in verse 12, we get a repeat of the third command, not to swear falsely using God's name. Understand, in those times, to swear an oath automatically meant invoking the name of some god or another. And Jehovah says, don't you ever invoke his name in swearing an oath that is either an impossibility to carry out or you know you have no intention of doing. A long time later, Yeshua is going to tell us that, you know, it's just better not to make an oath at all using God's name. Just make your yes, yes, and your no, no, and leave it at that. Besides, you know, life and circumstances change. Swearing an oath today may prove to be undoable tomorrow. Through absolutely no direct fault of your own and no intention at all to deceive. Remember that Yehovah doesn't look upon our careless oaths or the use of his name with some kind of grandfatherly wink and nod. It's a very serious business to him. Now verse 13 starts a whole series of verses that begins to much more carefully define God's idea of fairness and justice and what truthfulness is. Now let me emphasize something that's going to be shown to us repeatedly in our Torah studies. I'm afraid it's high time we acknowledge it and deal with it in our lives. Every single matter that the Lord sets down as a rule or a law or a command is the unveiling of goodness and righteousness. 
by definition, everything that's opposite of those rules and ordinances is evil. That is the real meaning of morality. Every last ordinance of God represents divinely, divinely defined morality. Therefore, every time we disobey, it is an act of immorality and evil. There's just no getting around it. Now, as how to apply these laws and commands from 3,500 years ago to our modern lives, I'm not saying to you that we're all supposed to literally go out and buy a field and not harvest it to its edges so that we can give it to the poor. Because in our day and age, especially in America, I have no doubts that the leftovers, the gleanings, would probably just as often sit there and rot as not. Yet the principle behind the law of gleaning is plain and is rather easy to apply in our modern American society. We're to always budget for charity. Always. If we have a large and abundant field, so to speak, we give. If we have a small field, we give. The proportion, though, remains about the same. Yet, if we see a greater need due to harder times, we're supposed to give more, not less. Now, naturally, the amounts are going to differ according to the size of our fields. I mean that metaphorically, as our incomes and our wealth. But there is no allowance by God to stop giving just because we're not all Bill Gates. Nor because we prefer a new and better car, but to have one means, well... Now there's no room for charity. Now verse 13 speaks of two types of false dealing. Fraud and robbery. Now in Hebrew, fraud is oshech. And robbery is gezelah. Now the, the, the Bible defines robbery as taking something from somebody that already belongs to that person. In other words, I own a goat, you take my goat, knowing that it's mine and not yours, that's robbery. Fraud means to withhold something from someone, or to take something away from that person, to which the law says they're entitled to have it. You don't have it yet, you don't own it yet, but by all rights, perhaps it should be yours. And instead of giving it to you as I should have... I hold it back from you. Maybe through deception. Or maybe even from a position of power. It could refer to something like money that's owed to someone. And in fact, that's the example given at the end of verse 13. When it says, The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. In other words, God says, That's fraud. Biblically, wages actually mean more than the money owed from doing work. It actually includes the labor itself. So when someone holds back wages, it means that the person who did the job has lost both the effort and the compensation for his effort. In the strictest strictest sense, this command 
Not to withhold wages until morning means not to withhold a worker's wages until the next day. Because in that era, the person who earned that money likely would use it immediately to purchase food for his family for that day. Withholding that money even overnight meant people went to bed hungry. This was unfair and unjust in God's view. The usual and customary way, the expected way in Hebrew society and likely in most others as well for that day was for a day labor to be paid immediately upon the end of that workday. So for a field field owner to withhold a harvester's wages overnight, God calls it fraud. Now the next command, not to insult the deaf, isn't exactly the way we might think of it. Because the idea here is the person can't hear you. Okay? Then you can pretend that you're saying something nice to them when in fact you're insulting them. You can be smiling to their face and saying some terrible things about them. Okay? So this is both false and unjust. And of course that evil practice goes hand in hand with this idea of putting a stumbling block before a blind person. And this command actually could be taken completely literally and be correct. But later, Jewish thought on this matter made both of these regulations as about concerning general behavior. In other words, for instance, to to take advantage of a person's known weakness which could be seen as a kind of blindness or deafness, is seen as a violation of this command. This principle also was applied to a person that you were dealing with of lesser intelligence, of known lesser intelligence. And as a result, somebody smarter or better educated could easily mislead that person and take advantage of them. In other words, that deaf person may not know that you've insulted him or that that blind person may not be aware that it was you that put an object in his path. But God says, you know what? Don't worry about it because I'm going to take care of it. I know who did it. I'll handle it. Now, justice in both the judicial sense and in the sense of fair play is the whole focus of verses 15 and 16. And you know, I marvel at the way that God follows a pattern that basically begins with Exodus 20 and his first formal ordinances to his set-apart people and then how he patiently and lovingly paints this ever-defined, ever-more-defined picture by expanding and building upon those ten basic commandments. That is, you know, God starts with teaching the primary colors, the ten commandments. And then he starts to teach about hue and tone, the remaining 603 laws. He sets down these foundational principles in a few words, and then steadily, over time, at a pace humans can absorb, he starts introducing nuances deeper understanding of their application and their meaning. At first, these rules mostly seem like a list of simple 
human behavioral do's and don'ts. Mechanical, locked into a physical reality. Then later, after people have been taught the basics, God starts to add aspects that seem unfamiliar, maybe even odd. Things like the laws of clean and unclean that, that, that really don't have that much to do with fair and just behavior among men. Things that make one understand that there is something about these laws that extends well beyond biological life and, and human culture and civil structure. And then finally, 13 centuries later, Yeshua comes to explain that the Torah and all of its ordinances and rituals are a foreshadow of a world to come. And all of the principles contained in the law had a far greater spiritual component, full of much deeper meaning than as simply a complex legal code that led to crime and punishment. And this instruction of God not to render an unfair decision, you know, I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. I mean, what else is God going to say? That men should render unfair decisions? I mean, what's he going to say? But, but what we have to remember that is going on here is that God is, in almost every respect, teaching Israel to imitate him. God is holy, so he's teaching Israel, through his laws and commands, what holiness is. What holy behavior looks like. God says not to show special favoritism to the poor nor special deference to the rich. Justice is not just if one gets special treatment and another doesn't. And this is not always an easy ideal for men to live up to. In some societies, particularly those of an aristocratic nature, it goes without question that the rich are treated differently than the poor because the poor are there to serve the rich. That's the viewpoint. Okay. It's understood to be that way by both classes. The poor are less important in the grand scheme of things than the rich. And as much as that kind of turns our stomachs in America, we have a tendency to violate that law at the other end of the scale by at times showing undue favoritism to the poor. Beginning with the hippie movement, that unfortunately I remember all too well, judges begin to interject into our criminal laws the theory of societal and communal guilt. Okay? That is, that Often it's the overall society that's more at fault than the actual perpetrator of a crime. And usually the basis of that societal fault was a criminal's poverty or illiteracy or maybe a broken home. Now, in other words, the judge in some cases would count the socioeconomic status of a person as a factor when determining their sentence. And at times, even in determining their guilt or innocence. We're told that 
who our nation regards as the poor should at times have less personal responsibility to do what is right and therefore be punished less for what they did wrong because they're poor and therefore they're at a disadvantage. A middle class person has less excuse for his actions because he's not poor, but he has his own problems in obtaining justice because his means to deal with legal counsels limited and a rich person now has a whole different set of problems to deal with. Most of his crimes are said to be white collar, which means they're more about lapses in ethics than criminality, according to our legal system. And so justice is often more about their just returning money that was a bill gain than losing their freedom for an extended period of time. The point is that once a people or a nation begins to mete out justice based in any fashion on rich or poor, class status, then by God's definition, justice is not being served. But an even larger issue is that God is, of course, revealing his character by means of these laws. He's revealing how he operates. And that he does not show favoritism to the poor, nor disdain for the rich, nor vice versa. His justice is based on the determination of the human will that he gave to mankind. Wills given specifically for the purpose of choosing to follow the ways of holiness or following the ways of evil. The will to love God or not. Whether one has a large checking account or not at all, whether one lives on the seashore or under a bridge, is of no bearing as as concerns God's justice for the choices that an individual makes. Now we're going to look at we're going to end off tonight by looking at verses 17 and 18. I'm just going to reread them to you. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but rebuke your neighbor frankly so that he won't carry a sin because of him. Don't take vengeance on or bear a grudge against any of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I am Adonai. Verses 17 and 18 are one total thought. They have to be taken together as a unit. Now, there's a couple of key words we're going to look at because they help to define just who that brother is that Israel is told not to hate in their hearts. Okay. And who that neighbor is that an Israelite's to rebuke. The Hebrew word translated usually as brother, like in our complete Jewish Bible, or sometimes as fellow countrymen, or sometimes as kinsfolk, is A-C-H, Ah. And Ah is a very broad Hebrew word. It could be, it could mean an actual brother, like a sibling. It could mean a close family member. It could mean a distant family member. It could mean a good friend. Okay? But except in the rarest of cases in the Bible, the outermost boundary of who one's brother can be is defined by the Hebrew word ah, they must be a fellow Israelite. A fellow in the faith. When that Israelite is a natural, whether that Israelite is a natural born Hebrew or a foreigner who's joined, he's still an Israelite. Let me be clear. This term is used here 
in verses 17 and 18 would not refer to anyone outside of the nation of Israel in this particular context. It is not unlike a Christian referring to any other Christian of any other nation or denomination as a brother in Christ. It's the same idea. Now in the second half of the first verse it says to reprove or rebuke your neighbor. And the Hebrew word for neighbor is amit. And amit is equally as broad in general as ach. Yet while ach indicates more the idea of a person who has some kind of near or maybe even distant family relationship with you, amit really means a person, any person, who you know and who you have some kind of fairly regular contact with. Today we might say friend or acquaintance, neighbors kind of a bit distant in our current way of thinking because in contemporary America, you know, it's fairly normal to live next door to somebody and not even know their name, let alone talk to them. I mean, that would never have happened in Israeli society. Right? Nor usually in American society even 30 or 40 years ago. So when the Bible says neighbor, it is assuming that you know this person, that they're probably not related, but you've developed some type of regular relationship with them. Now these two verses are really kind of awkwardly worded, if you ask me. The idea of verse 17, though, is that we should not be angry or have some issue with someone we know and just let it lay there in our hearts and fester. Presumably not letting on to that person you're even angry with them. How's everything? Fine. (laughs) Rather, Jehovah says in the second half of verse 17, confront them. Tell them honestly and presumably decently and lovingly and with neither anger nor false sweetness of the thing that's causing the problem. Further, says verse 18, no matter the outcome, you're neither to seek vengeance nor to allow bitterness to grow in your heart against that person. Instead of that, we should, and then here we have that statement, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the context for it all. But oh boy, here we have another concept supposedly invented in the New Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it turns out it's actually a Torah command given to Israel right here in Leviticus. In fact, 13 centuries later, when Jesus repeats and quotes this same Torah command, he acknowledges that it is an ancient command of the law. And he says it in Matthew 22, 37. It says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourselves. On these two commandments depended the whole law and the prophets. And just to show you that Jews in general believe this, we find in the writings of Rabbi Akiba, who lived in about the same time as Yeshua, 
these words as he comments on Leviticus 19. He says, love your neighbor as yourself is the central principle in the Torah. This ideal of love that Jesus was espousing was actually mainstream Jewish thought of his era. And records show that it was that way for centuries before that as well. Now verse 19 is very important. And I'm going to reread that and then we're going to close this evening after a couple of comments. It says, Observe my regulations. Don't let your livestock mate with those of another kind. Don't sow your field with two different kinds of grain. Don't wear a garment of cloth made with two different kinds of thread. We're going to stop and examine a very important principle contained within this rather odd and obscure set of rules that we read in verse 19. And the principle revolves around a word that we learned about a couple weeks ago. Tevel. T-E-V-E-L. Tevel. And it means confusion. But it's usually translated as perversion. Now let me be clear that the commandment of verse 19 was meant for the Israelites to take very literally. It definitely meant that whatever was described not to be mixed was not to be mixed. It begins by saying that Behemah are not to be interbred. Behemah is often translated as simply animals or cattle or beasts. But Behama is actually referring to this range of domesticated farm animals. Sheep, cattle, goats. It could refer to donkeys or even camels at a much later date. So the idea is a cow shouldn't be interbred with a donkey. A sheep shouldn't be interbred with a goat, even if that were possible. Then we get the admonition to not plant two different crops in the same field at the same time. And the most common temptation to do this would have been to sow a grain crop in the large vacant rows between grapevines. And finally, two different kinds of thread are to be woven together to make into garments. For instance, linen and wool are not to be made into a thread and then woven into a cloth. What's behind this command? What possible harm is there in planting some barley underneath some grapevines? Or hybridizing a cow and a buffalo to come up with a very hardy animal whose meat is lean, a beefalo. What's the harm? What evil is there in using a mixture of, say, silk and cotton? to create a fabric that's cool but durable. As I said, these commands were understood to be completely literal and so were indeed practiced as law. Yet the Hebrew sages also understood that there was something much larger and much deeper that was at work here within these commandments. In a nutshell, what was happening was that God was setting boundaries. And boundaries are the result 
of one of God's most used and fundamental governing dynamics. And that is that Yehovah divides, elects, and separates the holy from the unholy, the clean from the unclean. And boundaries are a very difficult thing for men to establish and even harder for us to maintain. And as children of God, we are enjoined by Jehovah with the command to be in harmony with one another and yet simultaneously to recognize the individuality or better distinctions that God has created all through his creation. But the distinctions that he's concerned with are between good and evil, clean and unclean, holy and unholy, and between his people and everybody else. Now stay with me, because Leviticus 19.19 is precisely about dividing, electing, and separating. And it's about establishing distinctions and boundaries. Since it's Jehovah that makes these distinctions and sets up the appropriate boundaries, you know, it's man's natural evil inclination to turn right around and try to blur them and to dismantle those boundaries, just to try to run right through them if we can. We see it so prevalent today, embodied in a world that worships multiculturalism, tolerance, unfettered diversity, moral relativism, and the latest challenge to God's boundaries, same-sex marriage. Within the body of Christ, the so-called interfaith movement has gained a lot of steam. A movement that seeks to equate any and all kinds of spiritualism as good things. And to say that all gods worshipped by any name are the same God. They teach that there are many doors to heaven. Messiah is just one. Now, I don't want to detour, but I would like to offend your comfort level just a little bit. Are you aware of why and how all this blurring of distinctions and erasing of boundaries is taking place? In my view, the primary reason after man's own natural evil inclination is modern church doctrines. Doctrines that say that God's laws, when all, where all of these distinctions that we're going to learn about are spelled out, and where the boundaries are described, are now obsolete. Doctrines that say that the Torah, which is the only place in the Bible where holiness is spelled out for us, is, a, is about as important to our Bible as an appendix is to a modern human being's digestive system. You know, every human has an appendix that used to do something apparently useful. But now, today, all it can do is cause trouble. That's basically how the church sees the Torah and the Old Testament. It's just a relic of a past dispensation that does little but to cause a modern believer trouble. And many church doctrines say that with the advent of Jesus, obedience to God's commands is obsolete. In fact, to be too obedient 
is tantamount to the dreaded legalistic and works mindset that we've all heard preached about so much. If one believes that the Bible starts at the book of Matthew, then one takes away all the underlying principles that Jesus based all of his teachings on. The point is this. It's the removal of Torah from the church that has allowed for these erroneous, man-made doctrines that have supplanted Scripture for our source of truth. It has also led many professing Christians to deny the deity of Jesus, to claim that the church has inherited all the blessings of God and the Jews have been assigned all the curses, and to the dissolving of boundaries between the body of Christ and the world at large. You know, I heard a man say recently, I thought something very profound. And it is that we're to teach the word of God, but we're not to teach it as the world would do it. We're to teach it as Jesus would do it out of purity. Otherwise, all we're doing is pulling the world's greatest bait and switch. There's his way and there's the world's way. We're going to example, examine this mixing that has really taken over over the last couple of hundred years and unfortunately very much so over the last 25 years or so. What I say is improper mixing. And it has led to tevel, confusion among the body. And we'll work on that some more next week.